signs that are found, uh, Jesus' seven signs that are found in the book of John. Uh, and, and there's so much that we can think about and talk about. And I'll be honest with y'all, I uh, was sitting down, you know, looking at this over the last uh, few weeks, and I was struggling a little bit. I was struggling because this isn't the first time I've spoke on this before. And I go back and I talk about it. And, uh, you know, belief is a difficult thing. And belief is a thing in our world now that uh, it just seems to be all over the place. Now, how do we tell people what we believe? Like, can you define belief? Is that a thing that we can, like, get down a piece of paper and put down something? Uh, you know, we can't, it's tough to see, it's, it's tough to understand. You know, how do we know we believe in something? How do we know we believe in somebody? And how do we know that we trust somebody? I got an email this morning from somebody reminding me of something I said I would do three weeks ago. So I took care of it at 6.45 in the morning through an email. Now, how do we know that, uh, that belief and trust, you know, uh, what do we do when we're struggling with belief? What do we do there? Belief has the ability to shape what we know to be true. Friends, how many times in the last few years have you seen something on the news or have you seen something on the internet and sat back and said, I don't know if I believe that or not. Friends, one of the reasons I told you I was struggling with this, one of the reasons I'm struggling with it is, you know, even in the last six months, everything has completely changed that we see. I don't know how much y'all know about this. I see it a lot just because I'm, I'm aware of it, but I'm also interested in it. You know, have, do y'all know what a deep fake is? Have y'all heard this term before? I see some of y'all saying yes. Some of y'all can be like, Chad, what word is this you're using? A deep fake? Deep fake. So, yeah. So now, because of technology and because of artificial intelligence, we can, people can now analyze the, some, how someone speaks, analyze video of them, and they can create artificial intelligence videos that seem to be that person with that person's voice saying things in the way that that person says things, but it never actually happened. You know, part of the controversy this last week, I, like many of y'all, my eyes have been glued to the news about the conflict between Israel and Hamas. And one of the arguments that's been going on in news is how do we know some of these pictures that are being released were not generated by artificial intelligence. Friends, I actually kind of think artificial intelligence is a nifty thing. I, uh, I had a little, I had a little uh, side experiment this summer making Bigfoot stickers with artificial intelligence. I, I, I kind of I pay attention to this. I pay attention to it. But how do we know to be true? And I'll, friends, I'm going to be honest with y'all. I'm a little nervous over the next couple of years because we're about to come up on another presidential election cycle. And I don't think our culture understands truth and belief enough to make it through this. You know, my own, and I'm, I'm trying to be vulnerable with you all now, I think my nervousness over, you know, starting this series was realizing belief is so complicated now. How do we know what we believe? Also, is belief a one-time thing? We talk about faith in the church. Another thing I'm 
terribly interested in right now is how much the landscape of the church in America has changed even in my lifetime. Since I've been in ministry for 20 years, how much has changed? You know, is believing in Jesus a one-time thing? Or does our faith exist on a spectrum? How do we understand the ebbs and the flows of our own life with Jesus? What does that look like? Belief matters because in many ways what belief is, it's a confirmation of our expectation. If we're talking about spiritual belief, we're talking about belief in institutions or people or anything, belief is about a confirmation of our expectations. We want to believe things, but we want to believe the things we need to believe in order to expect the world to be working in the way that we want it to work. Belief in truth is a hot-button issue. Suspicion and motives either work together to, to either reinforce the expectations we have or to break down what we think we know to be true. So up into Advent, what we'll be doing is looking at these seven signs of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Now, John doesn't use the word miracle in his Gospel. If you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they talk about miracles. John uses the word signs. It's a little bit different. And so each Sunday, we're going to take a look at these signs of Jesus. We're going to do it in a sequential way. But before I read the passage for this morning, I just wanted you to think about belief and listen in these words of Scripture for how belief is spoken about because belief, and we'll talk about it more this week, belief just tends to be the same thing that always comes up in all of these signs. So here are the words of Scripture, John chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and His disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to Him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and me? My hour has not yet come. If anybody thinks Jesus is talking back to His mother right now, that last phrase, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. That sounds like a mother, doesn't it? A mother who trusts her son. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim, and he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine, and he, did not, and he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. Word in church, right? But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of His signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed His glory, and His disciples believed in Him. It's the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So let's talk a little bit about this situation and the way that expectation is playing into it because there are a lot of expectations here. Remember we talked about how you know, belief is tied to our understanding of, of, the, of confirmation of our expectations. You know, a wedding is a big expectation. Weddings is a massive event. We think weddings a big deal now. 
I don't ever want to go through wedding preparation again. I didn't do anything. I don't want to do it again. Weddings are a big deal in our world now, but friends, let me tell you what, weddings back then were really, really, really big. They were a seven-day event. You took off work to go to a wedding. Seven days. And what's wild is the Jewish wedding would go over the Sabbath. There was actually exclusion from the things that you weren't supposed to do on the Sabbath that in the first century you were allowed to do for weddings. It was seven days of feasting. I mean, I, I like, I, I, as a kid growing up, my dad, being a pastor, I went to a lot of weddings, and I quickly learned to ask my dad, Daddy, is this a Baptist wedding or a Catholic wedding? <laughs> Baptist weddings meant we went to the education building of the church, and there was dinner mints, and maybe those little beanie weenies. Catholic wedding, well, there was all sorts of food. There was chicken wings. It was, it was great. There was Coke. Not church punch. I mean, I, so, but seven days feasting. You saved up your entire life for weddings. We save our money now for retirement or for a, a camp or a second home or that sort of a thing. No, you showed your wealth. Your lifetime wealth was transferred at weddings. This is when sons took on property. This is when, when, when daughters took wealth from their family. When the, the whole idea of a dowry. What's wild also is this, because let's be honest, how many of y'all have ever returned a wedding gift before? Meredith raised her hand. We got, so, we got enough pewter, we could have armed the Revolutionary Army. <laughs> and, in the first century, wedding gifts were known to be returnable. They were considered to be a loan. If you got crossways with somebody and you, you gave them five cows for their wedding, you can come back and say, listen... Our relationship's broken. I need them cows back. It was a culture of reciprocity. Friends, that there's so many expectations of like, you do this, and you do this, and you do this, and you do this. I mean, it's so much expectation of cultural norms is tied into weddings. The story is just stacked deep with metaphor. We don't have time. I could get like Bible nerdy with y'all and bullet point this out all day long. Well, what's interesting is two things. Number one, the only wedding gift that could not be returned, the back and forth did not happen, was with wine. And the, and the second thing is there was one rule. One rule for weddings. You don't run out of anything. Because to do so meant you weren't willing to, to, be, to share that reciprocity with other people. In some ways, weddings were almost seen as a way to, to economically reset a community in some ways. You don't run out of food. You don't run out of wine. So there are all those expectations that we're right there. Mary had expectations. I, I'm going to be honest with you all. I quit, this is probably the... Eighth or ninth time I've preached this passage in 15 years of preaching weekly. I am going to attempt to handle the interplay between Jesus and Mary. And all the I did it yet again this week. I read every single commentary I could get my hands on. Nobody wants to tango with it. And I think I'm beginning to think now it's not because they're scared of it, 
but it's because it actually doesn't matter that much. We just see this interchange between a son and his mother, and we think it sounds awkward. And the fact that it's Jesus and his mother, it makes it even tremendously more awkward. But Mary had expectations. We know from the Gospel of Luke, I love reading all the Advent stories in the Gospel of Luke because what you see is multiple times Mary sees Jesus say things and do things or sees people say things and do things about Jesus. And what it always says is she stored these things up in her heart. Mary knows who her son is. She knows who he is. And I think this back and forth in some ways with between her and Jesus is about expectation. I can see Mary saying, Son, when is it going to happen? I know who you are. You know who you are. I know what you're waiting on. He says it here, My time has not yet come. My, the hour has not yet come. That phrase gets repeated throughout John over and over and over again. I think that expectation is Mary saying, Son, are you finally going to start doing it? She had expectations. And there's these jars. It says between 20 and 30 gallons. They're there for ceremonial washing. Friends, you had to have a lot of folks around. How many gallons of water is that? Is it six jars? I'm not smart enough to do that math that quick. I should have done it three days ago. But there had to be a lot of people there that needed to get that much ceremonial washing done, right? had to make sure before you come into this wedding, you're ritually pure, that you're, you're ready. And that's interesting. The only other place you find people have to maintain this level of ritual purity in Scripture is when priests and Levites go serve at the temple. So clearly, the wedding event, something very, very, very sacred is going on when they're having to provide people this level of ceremonial purity before things. They're in Galilee. These are normal folks. These aren't people going to serve to make sacrifices at the temple. Expectations are all over this story. But friends, expectations can hurt us too, can't they? How many times have you maybe not lived up to somebody's expectations? Sometimes that's real. You know, like when, when you're a kid and your parents have an expectation of you, but then also sometimes you've got somebody, a boss or a coworker or a person, or a friend or whatever, they've got unfair expectations. Expectations are a complicated thing. But also what happens when we have expectations over someone or something and that expectation is wrong? That can, that can hurt us too. Here we find all sorts of people coming up to Jesus with all sorts of expectations. But I think there's a part of the story that we could easily miss out on, and I think it's the best part of the story. It's the last verse we read. Jesus did this, the first of His signs in Cana of Galilee. Two things. One, and revealed His glory. Two, and His disciples believed in Him. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and made His home among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of a Father's one and only Son. It's the truthfulness of who God is, the truthfulness of who Jesus is, the, the accurate expectation, the thing that we do trust, the thing that we do believe. We have seen His glory. It says here, Jesus revealed His glory. It was the first time He revealed His glory. 
And I think that the, the revealing of the glory is one of the parts of the story. Everybody always wants to talk about the wine part of this scripture. You know, wine's a symbol of peace and prosperity. It's also a symbol of things that you can't make overnight. Wine takes time. It takes time to ferment the grapes. and takes time to make it. It takes time to grow the grapes. It takes time to make the vineyard healthy enough to grow grapes that are possible to turn into wine. There was a vineyard up in West Monroe when Meredith and I lived in Washtenaw Parish. Everybody loved to go to Landry Vineyards. They'd have little concerts, that kind of stuff. You could bring your blanket. Kevin's shaking his head. Yes, he's been there before. There's, there's, they had all the, plant, the vines were out there, the vineyard and stuff. It was huge. It was great. It was a lot of fun. They're, they didn't make any wine there. Their vines weren't old enough. They hadn't matured enough. They've been operating for years and they were buying grapes from other parts of the country because they hadn't had the time for their vines to be mature enough to make the right kind of grapes at the level they need them to. In Scripture, we see vineyards and we see fig trees talked about a lot in the same way because they both take time to mature to produce a fruit that can produce something else. What's interesting is also the first thing a conquering army would come and do when they went into a new place is they would destroy the vineyards and destroy the fig trees because it would eliminate the ability for that community to have those things for years. You know, the wine was about purifying the water. It was mixed. When, when the steward comes in and says, you're serving the good wine now, what he's saying is, normally this is really watered down by now. Like you... You go full strength early on, and then you keep on watering it down and watering it down. It turns into the purification agent. In Scripture, when we see people praise God and talk about these fig trees and these vineyards, one of the things they're saying is, we have had peace for a long enough of a time to be able to have fig trees and to have vineyards. It means that things are well. That's what Jesus does. He takes our expectations. And he goes beyond what's possible. The whole steward, this is the good wine. Why are you saving it now? Because Jesus is saying, we no longer have to water down the good stuff. With me here, we don't have to water down peace and prosperity and safety. We don't have to hold things back anymore. We can see 100% and experience 100% of what we are supposed to. We don't have to live half presence with God. He's fully here. You know, earlier in chapter 1, just a few, and I think this verse has something to do with it. When Jesus called the, uh, the disciple Nathaniel to him, he says this in 149. Nathaniel replied, Rabbi, you're the Son of God, you're the King of Israel. And Jesus answered, Do you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than these. That, that promise of seeing greater things is also woven throughout 
John. Jesus is coming in in this story. The first sign, taking something ordinary that's chock full of expectations, is making a statement But every single thing he's going to do. It's not just a miracle for the sake of a miracle, but it's about belief and that belief matters. When we believe something, we realize that there's something that's larger than ourself. We're willing to say, this is beyond me. And if we, if we think about it, it, it means us realizing, you know, as much as we love ourselves, we don't have to trust ourselves anymore. So saying, I, I can trust God here. I can believe in Him. When, and, and the handful of people who saw this, this sign, I love it. It was really just the disciples, maybe, Jesus' mother, and these servants in the back end. You figure Jesus is going to drop His first miracle among people, it's good. you'd want it to be big and flashy, right? It was a handful of servants and his mom, maybe his disciples. But they were realizing that they were about to be witnessing things significantly larger than themselves. The belief that Jesus calls us into is not something that we can control or contain but it's a scenario. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, a way of us saying we're wide open to you. That we're willing to let go of our expectations. Another funny thing about belief is there's actually a different way we can translate it. And it's something I realized several years ago. And I've gotten to the point now that I can't read the Gospel of John without doing this. Uh, so John uses the language of belief 56 times in his Gospel. It's roughly three times every chapter. I now have a little light blue pen that whenever I see the word belief in John, I kind of scribble over belief, and then I make a note at the top just so I can see it in the Bible I use every day in front of me. But this is, what's, this is why I do that. There's another word that we can translate, and it's belief, and it's the word trust. So 56 times in the Gospel of John, what we see Jesus saying is, this is how you can trust I read verse 11 again. Jesus revealed His glory and His disciples trusted in Him. You know, when belief is kind of hard to explain sometimes, what I've found is it's a lot easier to explain trust in that scenario, isn't it? You know, we've got two ladders at our house. One was cheap and one was expensive. The expensive one is one of the ones that you get at Home Depot now and it expands and contorts and does all the weird... Have y'all, have y'all seen those ladders? It can be like a flat ladder or an A-frame. Or you can, it's, it's complicated. It's heavy. It works great. The cheap one's one I bought at Walmart for $45. It's aluminum. It's 12 feet tall and I think it weighs 15 pounds. And I love it. It's light. It's easy to throw in the back of the truck. But it's also never let me down. I believe the fancy expensive lighter, uh, not lighter, uh, ladder will always work. But I trust the cheap aluminum ladder because it hasn't let me down yet. And a lot of times I think belief is in our head and we struggle with it. Trust is in our hearts. So this morning as we kind of just wrap up just a handful of just quick applications but to realize that 
we're called to trust into Jesus. You know, I like that idea because it lets us realize that our faith is a little bit on a spectrum. That our faith is growing. Our faith is alive. Our faith is not something that's supposed to be stagnant or static. Our faith is something that we press into when things are difficult. You know, believing and trusting into Jesus means it's all right when we have hard times and we don't know how to talk about it. So I'm excited for us to you know, pick apart these signs, have some fun on Sunday mornings with it, but to realize every single one of these are about Jesus doing things so people would trust in Him. One of my favorite parts of John uh, is the very, very end of the book of John. Uh, the last verse of John, John 21, verse 25, this is what John said, but there are also many other things that Jesus did. And if every one of them were written down, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. John's whole gospel is about trust. It's about the journey of trust, it's about that, that walk into it. So three ways we can just think about belief this week. First is this, what power do we give belief? Take some time to reflect on what do you believe in and why? What are, what are the hills you're willing to die on? You know, where might you get into arguments with people? Where might you be willing to... Uh, some people naturally enjoy confrontation a little bit. Some people don't really care for it. But like, what are the things you believe in so much that you will... Uh, you'll, I will talk about this. You'll stake a claim on it. But then think about how do those things that you so, are so strong, so sure on, how do they shape your reality? How do they help uh, you um, in life? How do they help you know what to expect? But think through, what are those handful of things that you're willing to make a fuss over? You might want to start off with things that are silly, but then realize they're the things that are serious. The second is this, you know, evaluate the expectations you have in life. What influence do our expectations say about our reality? You know, are we an optimistic person or a pessimistic person? I imagine our experiences have affected that outlook. Now, what expectations do you set for yourself? That might tell you a lot. And the last is this, to, to practice faith and trust. You know, the power of belief is just really demonstrated in Jesus' first sign here. And I think this challenges us to just trust something bigger than ourselves. I know in me, in my life, you know, last, last week I gave you all the little, the little line chart to do. I, I, I think in those sorts of things. Sometimes I think about, you know, where are the things, where do I need to see God's glory right now in my life? That truth of God. That's what Jesus came to show us, the glory of God. How might I, how might I then need to readjust my trust? I think it's a big, big thing for us to realize, hey, God, these are the things where I'm just struggling in trust. And realizing that's not space for us to feel guilty, but it's, a, it's an invitation for us to, to just put Jesus in that space. You've heard the phrase, don't put Jesus in a box. You know, this whole story, all these expectations, you had Mary, you had the chief steward, they were all trying to put Jesus in this box in this moment. 
And he blew the box out. But where might we need to stick Jesus? What box might we, we, we have that we've not allowed him to be in yet? You know, we practice stepping out in faith, believing that God wants to and will work in extravagant and unexpected ways, just as Jesus did turning the water into wine. But I share these with you because these are how we understand the truth of Jesus, the belief that we have here. You know, the truth is always going to challenge us. When was the last time Jesus challenged you? When was the last time you had to you know, reset expectations because you believed that Jesus was asking you to change something? I think that's a really good measure of how we're willing to let go of our expectations and how we're able to trust into Jesus and trust into His glory. And I love how with Jesus, it's not a command, it's always an invitation. He invites us into His big world, makes His home here with us, and stays with us. So let's pray together. Father, as we look and realize that sometimes we live in a small and a narrow world.